The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. I want to ask you if you've ever asked God for a sign. I think many of us have had one of those moments where we say something like this to God. God, I just need a sign. I need a sign from you, something to see what I'm supposed to do with my life. Maybe you've asked God for a sign because there's a decision you're trying to make. Uh, perhaps the, there's a, one of those types of decisions that there's not necessarily a right and a wrong. It's not a moral question. It's just a question of what's the best decision? What's the best course of action? And I wonder if you've ever asked God, please show me what am I supposed to do with my career? Show me what I'm supposed to do with where I live. Show me a sign. Maybe it's with a relationship. Trying to figure out, God, is this the right person for me? Would you just show me a sign and tell me in some way? Uh, we are just a few days really away from SoFlo Camp, which is our student camp for middle and high school students that we're doing this summer. There is so much effort and work that has gone into this with dozens of churches across South Florida participating in this. And so if you haven't signed up your middle school or high school student for SoFlo Camp, you've got to do it. It's free. You can go to SoFloCamp.com, sign them up. But here's why I bring up SoFlo Camp, because this season of camp, summer camp season, is one of those seasons where heaven gets flooded with prayers for signs from teenagers. It's filled with this season. And one of the more humorous ones that is inevitable every summer camp that I've been a part of, I've been a part of many, and I'm sure this year during SoFlo Camp, in some way people will pray prayers like this. God, if I am supposed to ask this girl out, please, God, would you show me a sign? God, would you put this girl in my path and Please, please, God, would you put her in my path so that I can ask her, would she say yes? Please, just show me a sign. Uh, it's comical uh, in camps past to have those moments or to see guys interrupt their small group time and say, hey, fellas, wait, she just added me on Instagram. She just asked me to be, she asked me to follow her on Instagram. It's amazing. And they celebrate, they get excited about this and they think, this is a sign from God. She must be the one. Sometimes we ask God for signs with silly little things, and sometimes we ask God for signs with big things, significant, weighty things. And we're going to study here in a moment a passage in the book of Judges where Gideon, really the main character in this section of scripture that we're studying, where Gideon asks God for a sign. And in this story, there's a lot of confusion, and if we read it kind of quickly and without really understanding the context, we can almost miss what it's teaching us about the nature of knowing what God wants us to do and whether or not we should be asking for signs and what kind of signs should we look for from God. But if we look closely at Judges chapter 6, this gives us so much helpful instruction so that we can know how to proceed and move forward, so we can know what God's purpose for our life is, what God's will for us is. And so I want to show you in Judges chapter 6, uh, we're going to read through this story and uh, we're going to draw two conclusions from this story. You're going to learn about God's purpose for you and you're going to learn about God's patience towards you, his purpose and his patience. Look with me, Judges chapter 6, let's look at Gideon's question asking God for a sign. Starting in verse 33, it says this, now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east, they came together and they crossed the Jordan 
and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the, the Abizarites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Now let me set the stage for where we're at. Uh, God has called Gideon. He sent an angel to Gideon. He's called Gideon to lead God's people to defeat the nation of Midian that had been oppressing them for seven years. For seven years, Midian had been plundering Israel, taking advantage of them. And God raises up a judge, a man named Gideon, calls him out and says, Gideon, you're going to stand as one man and defeat the nation of Midian. You're going to be Marked by my presence, my peace will be with you, I will be with you, you will not die, Gideon, you don't have to be afraid, but you're going to deliver my people, Israel, out of the hand of this enemy nation, Midian. So God tells this to Gideon. And so time goes on, days go by, and Gideon, here in this passage, finds out, receives word that the Midianites, this enemy nation, is now assembling for battle. Except it's not just the nation of Midian, they've brought their friends. So the Amalekites, and they've also brought the people of the east, those who live further east of the Jordan. And they gather right in the valley of Jezreel that's not too far from where Gideon lives. So Gideon finds out these people have gathered for battle. And what he does says that the spirit of the Lord, God's spirit, clothes Gideon. The Holy Spirit empowers Gideon for the battle that's to come. And Gideon responds by blowing the war trumpet and gathering an army. And so he goes through the process of gathering an army from his own town, from his clan, the Abizarites. And he gathers people from his tribe, Manasseh, and gathers people from Naphtali and Asher and Zebulun, these other tribes in Israel. He sends messengers all throughout. And they start gathering an army and forming this army that's preparing for this battle against Midian. Now, this is ancient times, so word doesn't spread all that quickly. So this is probably over the course of months. So he's getting ready for battle. He's getting ready to assemble against the Midianites and face the enemy that God told him he was going to deliver the people from. Here's what it says next. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand... As you have said. Now, if you have your own Bible there, highlight that phrase or circle that phrase. As you have said. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand. And circle this again, highlight again, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. So here's what happens. Gideon assembles his army for battle. People start building and he has this massive following. I mean, he's now the one who's commanding this really large army. And as this is taking place, Gideon then asks God for a sign. He says, God, if... You will indeed save Israel by my hand. As you've said, as you told me, the angel that came and showed up in his life and said, hey, this is what you're going to do. If you're going to do this, God, then here's this fleece of wool. He takes a fleece of wool and he sets it out on the threshing floor, the place where they would have threshed wheat to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so he puts it there on the threshing floor and he asks God for this sign. Think about the nature of the sign. He says, God, would you please make the 
fleece full of water may be full of dew in the morning, but the surrounding ground be totally dry. It's kind of an obscure sign he asked for, very specific. And so he does that. He lays it out. And sure enough, the next morning he goes out and there's so much water in the fleece, he could fill an entire bowl. But the ground around it was dry. Now Gideon is like us. Oftentimes when we ask God for a sign, or even if we don't ask God for a sign, and something happens and we're like, wait, is that a sign from God? Or is this just me misreading the situation? Gideon is like, well, I think I need more assurance. Look what happens next. He needs another sign. Verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. He has a sense that what he's doing isn't right. Listen, let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. Verse 40. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. So Gideon asks for another sign. This time he asks for the reverse. He wants the, the fleece to be dry in the morning, but the ground to be wet, just to be sure. And the miraculous thing is the next day, sure enough, it is so. God does exactly as Gideon requests. He gives him that sign. And so Gideon and the army get ready. They get prepared for battle. And in the chapter that follows in chapter 7 in the coming weeks, we're going to study how as this unfolds, this, this is them preparing to go and face this enemy nation around them. And so this is a really interesting passage, a bizarre one. And there's, there's, and there's really a lot of confusion as to what this means for us. Is this suggesting then that if we need to know what to do with our lives, if we're not sure about how to proceed or decision, that we can just like, I, I don't know, take a, a piece of clothing and just stick it outside and say, God, if you want me to take this job, then would you please put water, you know, do on the piece of clothing and make the ground dry? And what does this passage mean for us? How does this instruct us today? Well, I want to draw two conclusions from this that will be helpful to you. The first one is about God's purpose. So listen to this. This is what the, the first note I want you to write down, make a note of. Number one, this passage teaches us that God's purpose for your life is found in Scripture, not in signs. God's purpose for your life is found in Scripture, not in signs. That might sound like an odd thing to conclude from a passage that talks about a sign from God, but I want you to look closely at what's happening here. Look at verse 36 one more time. Verse 36, it says, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, and then what's the phrase? Yep, say it out loud, put it in the chat. You, you know what I'm talking about. As you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. What's happening here? Gideon, in this instance, is not in the situation where he doesn't know what to do. This is altogether different from the type of situation where, you know, we're between decisions. Do I take the job? Do I not take the job? Do I move my life and my family over here or do I stay here where it's home? Do I begin a relationship with this person or do I not begin it? This isn't that type of decision. God has already told Gideon what he's to do. Gideon doesn't have to wonder, 
man, does God want me to go out to battle against the, the Midianites or does he not want me to? It's abundantly clear. God sent an angel. And the angel said to him, Gideon, you're going to battle. Gideon knows this. He says to God, you've told me what I need to do, as you've said. And so this particular sign that Gideon is requesting isn't so much about Gideon trying to figure out what God wanted him to do with his life. It's not Gideon sitting around saying, God, what's my purpose? If the fleece is wet, then I'll know that my purpose is to go to battle. If it's not wet, then I know that it's not. No, Gideon knows. What this whole sign is about is Gideon is asking God to strengthen his faith where he's weak. He's already uh, preparing the army for battle. He's already on his way to do what God told him he's to do. And as things are getting closer, as the event is coming nearer, Gideon has this moment of fear and this moment of doubt where he says, God, I know what you've said. I know what you want me to do, but what you want me to do is scary. And so if you will do this, then please show your power in this way. Show that you, unlike Baal, have the true power over the forces of nature. Baal, the God of the Midianites that the people of Israel had started worshiping, they thought Baal was the one who could uh, have the forces of nature under his control. And Gideon wants the Lord, Yahweh, to prove, to show, to demonstrate his power that he is indeed the one who's all-powerful. He's the one who controls the forces of nature, not Baal. And so this sign is really serving to increase and encourage Gideon's faith. Now, an important note for us as we're thinking about, well, what does this passage instruct me today? There are some things that are different about Gideon's experience of God than ours. God is unchanging. He doesn't change. But our experience with God is is different in that Gideon enters into the story of God's redemption at a point in time where the full revelation that God was going to reveal about himself hadn't yet been given. Gideon, he, he hadn't seen and read about what Christ, the Messiah, would come and do. Gideon lived before that. And so Gideon probably only had an oral tradition of the law, an oral tradition of the creation story, an oral tradition of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. The deliverance, God led the people out of slavery. He probably had this oral tradition that revealed who God is. But what Gideon was going off of was God's word to him. When an angel came to him, the angel of the Lord, and said, Gideon, this is your purpose. You're to go and to lead my people, to deliver them from the hand of the Midianites. This was God's word to Gideon. Well, we have to ask the question, what is God's word to us? In our moments where we say to God, as you have said to us, What are we talking about? We're talking about the scripture. We're talking about the scripture. And that's why God's purpose for our lives, it's found in scripture, not in signs. God has already given us direction. He's given us a mission. He's given us his marching orders for how we're to lead our lives. We don't need to sit around and wait for some sign or to look in our, 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 our food to look for some type of weird shaped chip or Uh, something to be spelled out in our alphabet soup or anything like that. We don't need any type of sign, something in the clouds. We don't need that. God has laid out his purpose for our lives in his word. Listen to what Jesus says. This is Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. 
about what you will eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even King Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these lilies. But if God so clothes the the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Oh, Jesus simplifies things and makes things so clear for us. Jesus, the master teacher, tells us, he informs us and instructs us that the way to freedom, the way to the life that God has for us, the life of purpose, is to seek the kingdom of God, to seek first the kingdom of God. In a world where all around us people are living for food and drink and clothing and this need and that need, the things of this world that capture our attention, things that Jesus says are important. Jesus says, your father, he he knows you need all those things. He knows your needs. He cares for you. But at the same time, those things cannot be our primary pursuit. And if we find ourselves becoming anxious, maybe experiencing choice anxiety because we're unsure of this decision or that decision, it may be that that anxiety is an indicator that maybe we've prioritized something that ought to not be our number one priority. Jesus says, if you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, all these things, again, these things that matter to God, where you live, where you work, those things matter to God. He has a purpose in those. But those purposes are secondary to his primary purpose of you living in his kingdom and seeking his righteousness. What does it mean to seek the righteousness of God, to seek the kingdom of God? The idea of the kingdom of God is the domain of God's reign and authority. It's the the place in which, it's the avenue, the, the way of life in which we are submitted to God's good design for how to live. The kingdom of God is the the reign of God, his authority being realized here on earth in our lives and around us. And so Jesus says, if you want the life, the abundant life. What God has for you, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. It's as if Jesus is saying this, he'll put it a different way. Jesus says, if you aim for food and drink and clothing, and if you make your aim the things of this world and those become your pursuits and you get anxious about those because they're dominating your thoughts, it's all that you think about and you ask God for signs about those things and it consumes you. With all of those things, if those become your primary pursuits, you aim for them, you'll miss both the kingdom of God, the righteousness of God he has for you, and you'll miss ultimately the things he really wants for you. But if you aim for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you seek him, then not only will you experience and live in the kingdom, but you'll receive all the things that God wants for you. 
your good heavenly Father who loves you and cares for you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Jesus wants to free us. He wants to free us from those anxieties, for that tendency to be constantly looking for a sign and be so worried and anxious about these things. Jesus says, listen, I've already spoken. This is my primary purpose for you, that you live in my kingdom, that you are an ambassador of my kingdom and represent me in whatever sphere you go to, wherever you may be. This is what Jesus wants to do in our lives. We don't need to wait for a sign from God when Jesus has already given us a word from God. The scripture, this is God's word to us. It instructs us on the purpose that God has for our lives. It reveals who God is. And so all of the decisions that we have to make, we need to be praying about those decisions and bringing them to God and saying, God, I'm struggling to trust you here. My faith is weak here. I need your help to know what's the best decision here. We need to be coming to God and asking him for help in decisions that require wisdom, that have massive consequences based on the decision we make. We need that. But do we need a sign? Do we need to put out some fleece? Do we need to say, God, the next phone call that comes in, if it's the employer that I'm applying to the job, then I'll take the job? Do do we need to ask those kinds of signs? Or instead, through wise counsel, through anchoring ourselves to the scripture, to filling our mind with God's wisdom, and anchoring ourselves to what God has already spoken, should we walk in faith? Walk trusting Jesus. Stepping out in obedience to him. A more helpful thing to do than just ask God for some sign like a fleece. A more helpful thing to do is to just say, God, would you just help reveal my heart in this decision? Help me to see, is, is, is this about my kingdom or your kingdom? Is, is this career move, is this about me advancing my kingdom? Or is this an opportunity to be a part of your kingdom work? with this decision that's before me, with the person I'm considering dating, with whatever it is, God, is this my ki- about my kingdom or is this about your kingdom? Would you clarify that in my heart? And here's the thing, sometimes God will break through. You can't keep God in a box. Sometimes God will break through and show up and he'll do what he did in Gideon's life. He'll do something that makes it clear what you need to do. He'll show up and give you a sign. But more often than not, the journey of following Jesus The journey of living in God's kingdom is walking by faith and not by sight. It's walking, trusting the Lord that he's going to be with you and care for you. So pray about your decisions. Get wise counsel uh, about your decisions. But anchor yourself to the scripture. God's purpose for our lives, it's found in scripture, not in signs. It's in what God has spoken. For Gideon, his version of scripture is the angel of the Lord saying to him, this is your job, Gideon. And that's what Gideon sets out to do. He goes to the Lord and says, Lord, I need help. I need the faith to believe. Here's the second thing I want you to notice from this passage is God's patience towards his children. Write this down. God's patience towards his children is unrivaled and unrelenting. His incredible patience. You read this passage and one of the things you can't avoid in reading this passage is the incredible patience of God. He's so patient with Gideon. Look at verse... uh, 39 with me. Verse 39 says this. Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. 
Let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let, it, let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Now, I, I read this passage, and I'm almost shocked that God again and again gives Gideon signs. It, it's almost surprising, because we read in chapter 6, in part 2 of this series, we talked about how the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, tells Gideon in dramatic fashion what he's to do, and Gideon struggles to believe. He struggles to have faith, and so he asks the angel for a sign, and so the angel gives Gideon a sign. God gives Gideon a sign to confirm what he sees, to strengthen his faith where it's weak. And then they get ready for battle. It looks like things are going well for Gideon, and then he gets scared again and asks God for another sign and says, God, may the, may the fleece be wet and the ground be dry. And God does that. And then that wasn't enough, so he asked the reverse to take place. He says, God, let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. And man, God is so patient with Gideon. He, he doesn't give up on Gideon. Uh, just recently, I purchased a marble roller coaster set for uh, me to be able to play with my boys. It was a, just a, a purchase I made, fun activity that we could do together. And uh, I bring it home, and it was supposed to be a surprise, but my son saw it in the back of our car. So we started playing with it. And I mean, we have a blast with it. It's, it's really fun, but it reveals my lack of patience. Uh, I find myself building it, it on the box that says eight plus as far, as far as what age you should be to play with it. And it's clear. It is for eight plus, but I'm playing with my four-year-old and my one-and-a-half-year-old. And so just imagine a delicate, like very mechanical, like marble roller coaster set that's very flimsy. Doing that with a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, okay? You can imagine the kind of chaos it would create. And so Every time we've played with it, inevitably it'll get knocked down, bumped down. Uh, one of them will want to try and build something and just make the whole thing collapse on itself and have to start over. I found myself a couple times being so into it that I'm by myself playing with it and like my son is over somewhere else doing his own thing. And then I look and I'd be like, oh yeah, this is, this is so we could play together. What am I doing? You know? and, then, and then I get frustrated when they break it down and, and I, I just realize, wow, I... I lack patience. Like my response isn't, hey, it's okay, son. The, the reason I got this is so we could play together. It's all right that it fell down. We'll just rebuild it back up for the next 30 minutes, right? That's not my attitude. I lack patience. And if we're honest, we, we lack patience with one another and we lack patience with ourselves. Think about how many times in your life you've gotten frustrated with yourself or just given up on yourself, written yourself off. And we come to a passage like this where we see God's interaction with Gideon. And Gideon, time and time again, is afraid. Gideon, time and time again, is scared and unsure and doubting. And he asks God for a sign, and then another sign, and then another sign. And God comes through and is patient with Gideon. God doesn't say, uh, that's it, that's enough, no more, uh, I'm done with you, I'm going to move on to a different tribe and find a different judge because Gideon, clearly you're not getting it. No, God patiently continues to work in Gideon's life. He's patient. He's slow to anger. He won't give up. He's unrelenting. He won't quit on Gideon. He doesn't see Gideon as a disappointment. Now, the question we should ask is, what do we make of an episode like this when Gideon is clearly, he's testing God. 
He even uses that idea of, of testing God. I mean, it's, it's confusing for us because when you read the Old Testament of the Bible, every time someone tests God, using the same exact Hebrew word for test, it's a negative scenario and God does not respond well. God is not warm towards people who test him in this way. Why is it that God is so patient and kind and goes out of his way with Gideon? Well, we have kind of a hint and a framework to think about this idea in the New Testament as well. There's a group of religious leaders who often try to test Jesus. They'll either demand Jesus give them a sign or they'll ask him a trick question to try and trap him. And Jesus would rebuke these religious leaders saying, why are you putting me to the test? Calling them back to the command in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy where God says, do not put me to the test. It's not something God wants. But there's also a scenario in the New Testament where there's this father in Mark chapter 9 who comes in to Jesus in desperation. And he's tried everything to help his son, but his son has been severely oppressed by demons. And his son, who's been so hurt and wounded, he's tried everything to try and help his son, and nothing has worked. So he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you can, please heal my son. And Jesus responds, if you can. You realize who, who you're talking to? If you can. And the father responds by saying, with such transparency and honesty, I love his response because I think we can relate. He says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe you can, Jesus, but I'm struggling to believe that you can. Would you help me? Help me to believe where my faith is weak. Fill in that gap where I can't fully trust, where I've been wounded and hurt, where I feel afraid. Would you just fill in that gap? Now think about what's inherent in that request. That man, that father, believes that Jesus can do something about his unbelief. The nature of asking someone to help you means that you think they can do something to help you. So he says, I believe, but help me where I'm not believing. And so God sees through to this man's heart. And Jesus counts that confession of faith by that father as faith. Jesus goes on to heal the son. And there's this similar dynamic at work here in Gideon's life where God sees through into Gideon's heart. He does not respond harshly and say, you know, no, you shall not test me because he sees where Gideon's heart's at. He knows and understands this is not a hard-hearted, frustrated, angry person wanting to trap God or prove that God is a liar. No, that's not what Gideon's heart's at. Gideon is honestly saying to God, God, I know what you want me to do. And it's scary would you help me? Would you show me that, that you're able? Would you give me a sense of your power? Would you show up in my life? And that's the request that God honors. In fact, we're going to find out in the next few weeks, God actually is going to volunteer to give Gideon a sign. The first two signs Gideon got, the one with the angel and then the one with the fleece, Gideon's asking God, please give me a sign. I, I need to know. I, I, my faith is weak. Then in this next chapter, God is actually going to say, hey, Gideon, if you're still afraid, here's a sign. I want you to go check this out. Gideon takes him up on that offer. You see, God is in the faith building business. He is about building our faith where it's weak and he's patient with Gideon. He's patient with his children. He's unrelenting. He won't give up. And so these signs that Gideon experienced and we can experience these moments 
where God supernaturally, in answer to prayer or just out of the blue, God showing up in a powerful way in our life, doing something miraculous to build our faith in him, to build our confidence in him, to show us that when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, truly all these things will be added to us. That the birds of the air, they're taken care of and God cares for us so much more than they. He's patient with us. He's patient with you. For those who are in Christ, he's walking with you, serving to increase your faith. And so what do we do in light of a passage like this? How do we respond and act on this? We don't just want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. So what do we do in light of a passage like this? Well, here's what you do. You, you grab a fleece of wool. Maybe you go to a farm, you cut off some wool from a sheep, and then you set it out on your front lawn, and then you go to bed, and then you check it in. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, you don't do that. No, in light of a passage like this, seriously, what, what do we do? How do we implement this in our lives? I want, I want to just have a couple questions for you to reflect and ask yourself, answer honestly. What do we do in light of a passage like this? I want you to ask this question. Be honest. Is there an area of my life where fear is keeping me from obedience to God? Is there an area of my life where fear is keeping me from obeying the Lord? Where I know that me stepping out in faith and obeying God in this way, I know that there's a chance it won't end well for my comfort. I know there's a chance that I'm going to venture out into the unknown territories where I am way out of my comfort zone. I know that it might cost me something. Obedience to God is scary. Is there an area of your life, whether it's your career or your family life or your finances, your friendships, where you know God is calling you to obedience and yet there's fear clouding your decision. There's fear keeping you from doing that. Have you had moments where you ask the Lord, God, would you strengthen my trust in you? Have you gone over the passages in the scripture that tell us God's purpose for our life? Have you gone to those passages and said, God, I want to trust you in this area of my life. Help me. I believe that this is your word, that this is true. Would you help my unbelief? There was a, a moment for me, uh, this is a, would be in a few years ago, where I was reading in Matthew chapter 5, the section of scripture in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if you're worshiping the Lord at the temple there in Jerusalem, and you brought a gift to the altar, uh, and you realize that a brother, someone in your community, a friend, has something against you that you've wronged them, leave your gift there at the altar Go and be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. And so I read that one morning and immediately the Lord put a person's name on my heart. I just, I hadn't thought of this person in years. I hadn't talked to them in years. And it, the Lord put this person on my heart and I knew exactly why. Because this is someone that I needed to be reconciled to. And in that moment, I'm, we live in different parts of the state. So in that moment... I had the thought, whoa, what do I do? <laughs> and so I could have said something like this. I could have said, God, if you want me to apologize to this person, would you just put them in my path? <laughs> God, would you give me a sign that I need to indeed reach out to them? When in reality, it's clear. I, I knew what God wanted me to do. And so after pacing, I think later that day, I eventually worked up the courage and I called him. I apologized. And we had a, a helpful conversation that went well. But I wonder, 
How many times, and I think of other instances in my life where that fear has kept me from obedience or delayed my obedience to the Lord. Maybe there's something in your life that God is, is pressing on your heart and saying, hey, I'm, I'm inviting you to trust me here. I want you to have confidence in me here. Is there an area of your life where fear is keeping you from obedience to God? And then here's the next question. Do you currently view God as being patient towards you? Ask that of yourself. Do I view God as being patient towards me? You know, there's two errors that we can make when it comes to our view of God that I want to highlight for a moment. There's more, but two kind of pulls. There's the one, on the one hand, there's the view of God where God is kind of like the grandfather in the clouds who spoils his grandchildren and we can do no wrong. And God's up there, our biggest cheerleader, just cheering us on, helping us achieve our hopes and dreams whenever we need us, whenever we need him. He's there and he'll help us do whatever we want in our own lives so that we can be happy, right? There's that view of God. We can do no wrong. It's all good. But then there's the other view of God that says God is this rule stickler. And he's a judge in a courtroom examining every area of your life, ready to pounce on you when you do something wrong and punishing you for all the bad choices you've made and out to get you. So you better be good because you don't want to be judged by this guy and punished by him. And so there's that view of God. And the picture we have here in Judges 6 and throughout the entire Bible is neither of those gods, but a God who is patient with his children. Do you view your father in heaven as being patient towards you? You know, in my conversations with people who struggle to believe, maybe that might be you, that you're not sure what you believe about God. You know, one of the things that people often bring up is they just have a view that God is narrow. He's cold. I mean, how could he make only one way to him? But I want you to think about the story of the Bible for you for, for a moment. And maybe you've never really thought of the whole story of the Bible, but here's the story of the Bible. And I want you to ask the question, what kind of God is this? See, God makes mankind and he places mankind in a garden, beautiful garden. He says to Adam and Eve, I want you to trust me. I've made this beautiful garden for you to enjoy in my presence. I want you to trust me. And so you can eat of every tree in the garden, but just don't eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because in the day you eat of it, you'll die. And as the story goes, Adam and Eve choose to be their own God rather than trusting and submitting to the Lord. And so they disobey. They'll have it their own way. And so God sees this and responds, not by saying, that's it, I'm done, but instead he makes a promise. And he says, I am going to bring about salvation, that the seed of the woman, there's going to be an offspring from this woman who's going to come and redeem my people. He's going to defeat the enemy, the serpent. So time goes on and God adopts this family, the family of Abraham. And God says to Abraham and to his children, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And through your family, Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And here's what I want for you to do, Abraham. I want you to walk before me. I want your family to be a light and an example to the people around you so that the nations around you can see how you live and have a sense of who I am. And generations go on. And the family of Abraham is dysfunctional, violent towards one another, full of jealousy, full of hatred. And all this is taking place and God sees it all happening, this dysfunction, the fact that they're not walking according to his ways. And does God respond by saying, that's it, I'm done. I, I can't handle this anymore. No, God continues to bring salvation to his people and to call them to himself. He makes a way 
for them to survive a famine. They wind up in Egypt. And while in Egypt, they suffer, they become enslaved in Egypt. And God raises up a deliverer named Moses. And God says to Moses, I want you to deliver my people and set them free. And so this is what Moses does. And through a miraculous series of events, God comes through for his enslaved people. He's not given up on them. He hears their cries. He saves them. And as they're leaving the, the slavery that they just experienced, then his people turn on God start complaining and saying things like, it was better for us when we were in slavery than when we're now here in the wilderness on our way to the promised land. They make another God saying that this golden calf is what really delivered us out of Israel, what really delivered us out of Egypt. So God, seeing all of this, seeing their rejection of him again after he just saved them, how does God respond? He responds by raising up another generation. And another remnant, small group of people that he's calling to live before him, to be an example. And time goes on. We eventually end up in the period of Judges. And the book of Judges, where we're studying, is this cycle where God's people, they disobey, they reject him. And God sends a deliverer, a judge, who rescues them. And then time goes by, a generation passes, and again, the people reject the Lord. They say, I don't want anything to do with you. They follow their own gods. And so God raises another deliverer. And it's this cycle again and again and again. Disobedience, apostasy, and then God raises up a deliverer and brings them back. Then it's the period of the kings. And king after king after king ends poorly. There are some good kings, but in the midst of that, as God is still forming this people that's supposed to be a blessing to all nations, they reject the Lord. They continue to stiff arm God and say, no, we want to live our own way. We don't want to live according to your ways. And so God starts sending prophets, messengers, people saying, repent, turn from your ways, turn and live according to my ways. Trust me and I will bless you. I will be with you. And time and time again, the people reject the Lord until God sends them into exile they're sent into exile, and in the period of the exile, in their desperation, a group of God's people start to call out to him again. This is after hundreds of cycles of disobedience and deliverance and disobedience and, dis and deliverance. And God, not giving up on his people, brings them back to their promised land. And then things go quiet. And the story of the Bible picks up in the New Testament with God not sending just another prophet, he sends just one more prophet, a man named John the Baptist, who says, God is going to do something new. The kingdom of heaven is here. Behold, it's time to repent. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, shows up. After all of these generations of disobedience, all of these generations of rejecting the Lord time and time and time again. How does God respond? Does he respond by saying, that's it. There's no hope. I'm done. You're a cosmic disappointment. Humanity, figure it out yourself. You do you and I'm going to do me. No, that's not how the Lord responds. The Lord responds by coming himself. And how is Jesus received when he comes? Well, Jesus, God who's come down to us, he's received by people, his brothers, people in Israel who delivered him over to death to be crucified. And on the cross, Jesus takes our sin. He takes our punishment in our place. 
He dies as a sacrifice for us on the cross to take the punishment that our disobedience deserves, that our sin deserves. Jesus takes that on himself and he gives himself as a willing sacrifice for people who want him dead. Jesus dies for his enemies. He dies for the people whose sins nailed him to that cross. In this incredible act of love, he gives himself, he sacrifices himself for us. Though we've rejected God, though we've said, I, I want to live my own way. I'll live my life according to my own ways. I'll be God. And yet while we were sinners, Jesus dies for us. And then three days later, he rises up from the grave, defeating death. So I want to ask you the question, what kind of God is this, the God of the Bible? Is he a harsh, cold-hearted, narrow, exclusive God who is mean-spirited and out to get you and looking for ways to punish you? Or is he so incredibly patient that he would see our failure time and time again and not give up. That he would see Gideon struggle to believe after sign, after sign, after sign, after message, after message. See Gideon time and time again struggle to believe and have faith in God. That he's a God who would say, okay, Gideon, here's another sign. I want to show you you can trust me. See, your view of God is so important. And, and there are some believers who may be listening. Maybe you're struggling right now. You're a follower of Christ, but you're struggling. You need to know that your Father in heaven does not see you as a disappointment. Maybe your earthly father or your earthly mother, they maybe have brought that idea into your mind or introduced that thought that you're a disappointment. But your heavenly Father, if you're a follower of Jesus, he doesn't see you as a disappointment. He's a patient Father inviting you to trust him. Wanting to show that he is trustworthy and true. He's inviting you, whatever area of your fear, do you see your God? Your heavenly Father is patient towards you. And then there may be some of you who that, that what you need to do Maybe you, you've been struggling to believe. Maybe you've asked for a sign to show that God really cares about you. Here's the sign that God gave all of us. He gave us his son, Jesus, to die on a cross. And if you need a sign to know that God loves you, look at the cross. Think of the cross where God gave his life for you. To show you he loves you. To pay the penalty for your sins. To make a way for you to be reconciled to God. This is what Jesus invites you to. He's patient, and he invites you to trust him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for this uh, time in your word. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people of courage. Help us in those areas where fear is clouding our judgment, where fear is keeping us from obedience to you. And Lord, I do pray for those who don't know you, Lord, that right now in this moment, that you would give them faith, Lord, that you would work just as you did in Gideon's life to strengthen his faith. Lord, would you give brand new faith, new life. May there be people right now in this moment who call out to you for the first time and say, Jesus, I believe. In fact, if that's you with your head bowed and eyes closed, just call out to God in a moment of prayer and say, God, today I put my trust in you. Jesus, I believe you're my savior. You died for me and you rose for me. I want to follow you with my life. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us, you care for us. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. 
If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.